Socks on 35th is next. Doors open on the left. How's it going, everybody? My name is Duke Coughlin, and welcome to the Socks on 35th podcast. We are back with another exciting episode covering your Chicago White Sox. As always, I'm joined by our panelists, Jordan Lazowski, Nick Gower, and special contributor onto the show to discuss some of these uh, minor league prospects that we got over the trade deadline, Michael Suero. Gentlemen, how are we doing? Uh, the people listening can't tell, but I, I dressed very nicely with my polo and, and my well-done hair to celebrate the funeral of the first wave of this rebuild. Um, it's over. And now we're back to square one seven years later with uh, two playoff wins to discuss. Um, certainly looking forward to some of Michael's thoughts on the players, but there is a funeral aspect to what we're doing today. Yeah, it is what it is. I mean, like we've been talking about on prior episodes, we we all saw this coming, at least for indefinitely since April or May, even perhaps earlier. But at the same time, now that it's here, it's still kind of weird. And like I just turned on the White Sox game that is playing as we're recording this uh, against the Rangers on whatever it is, Tuesday night. And the first thing I see is a Luis Robert hitting a 410-foot flyout. That would have been a home run in 21 ballparks. And like, seriously, like it almost felt like it was like some sort of sign that I turned the game off. That's a sign that I took, by the way. But overall, I'm doing okay. It's just kind of a weird time. Yeah, I mean, I, I really like some of these moves that we've made uh, over the past few days, uh, really revamping our farm system. But, man, I, I really didn't think that we were going to be here a couple years ago. I, I really thought we were going to still be in a real contention window. And I just... I hate that we're going through this rebuild over again. You know, hopefully, and I don't think this time around is going to be a four-year process. I, I really hope that it's a quicker turnaround this time around, and I hope maybe that the front office learned from some of their mistakes in terms of oh, roster construction. But, man, it is uh, not where I thought we would be at this point. So it, it is a bit depressing, but hopefully there's brighter things to come soon. Yeah, I mean, um, just touching on it really quick before we jump in here. You know, it's uh, it's the Chicago White Sox. At, at a certain point, when you expect more out of them than what we got out of this little, uh, you know, basically replication of what the Cubs did to win the, their first World Series in, what, 100-plus years, this is kind of where you get, you know. Um, un- unfortunately... You know, and we're we're all sitting here as uh, fairly young men. We didn't really see what being a White Sox fan was before two thousand five. It was it was a long, miserable process, and uh, unfortunately, we are beholden with an owner who genuinely doesn't have much uh, <laughs> doesn't genuinely have much reason to change what he's doing as long as he's making money, and that's the unfortunate, sad truth of it. You know. Um, I, I do think I do think there's different perspectives you can take on a season to season basis and maybe an overall basis uh, with what we've returned on the deadline. But uh, that stuff we'll talk about a little bit more in the episode. I don't want to start uh, start the show like fully bleak because, you know, I'm with you, Michael. I think there are some good prospects we got from this got from this trade deadline. But, you know, we just uh, when you operate like a small market team for this long, this is just genuinely the results you're going to get when you don't go all the way in and you you take it. But anyway, um, we've quite a, bit of co- quite a bit to cover in this episode. Before we get started, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcast. Also, be sure to check out the website at SoxOn35th.com, as well as following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at SoxOn35th. Um, so obviously, uh, uh, a gaggle of moves that have happened here at the trade deadline. Um, guys like Jake Berger have moved. Um, there have been, you know, Jake Berger, obviously a heartbreaker for me. Um, I'm not going to sit here and pretend like, uh, that one didn't, didn't sting today, but, uh, Michael just, uh, you know, without going into every individual move that the White Sox have made, um, what are some of the best returns that you think, um, we've gotten just, just in this past day, uh, right here at the deadline, um, as far as, uh, the Jake Berger trade, um, the Middleton trade, 
um, any, any any other moves that you can think of? Um, what what are your favorite players that you've gotten off the return? Just just an initial reaction here. Yeah, I mean, you, you brought up Jake Berger, and as, as sad as I was to see him go to, you know, I, I'm with everyone on that. You know, it makes sense why they moved him. They sold him at peak value. Um, I. It's it's a bummer, but he's a he's a guy that he didn't offer a ton of value defensively, and he had some holes in his offensive approach. So I do think that they were able to get max value on him in this deadline. And Jake Eater is a guy that I really like, who we got back for Berger. He's a left-handed pitcher. He's got a plus fastball slider combo. He's also got a changeup that's. A little bit behind the other two pitches, but it's it's not a bad pitch by any means. It's a okay third pitch. Um, he's a guy who he was recovering from Tommy John surgery. He's only pitched minimally this year, so he's not fully back to himself. But when he's right, he has plus stuff. He has probably number two starter potential. Um, I, I'm really excited about that addition to this farm system. I do think that he slots in immediately as the second best pitcher in our farm system behind Noah Schultz. Um, and again, it's a bummer that we had a trade burger for him, but I do think that this was a really, really solid return for burger. And I I'm really excited to watch uh, Jake Eater pitch. He uh, was pitching for double A uh, for the Marlins. I'm assuming that's where he's gonna stick with the White Sox. He is, you know, 24 turning 25 relatively soon. So, you know, I, I do think he's going to move relatively quickly and could be in our rotation as early next year. But in terms of moves that we made at this final day, I think that was you know clearly the best one we made. I'll give the Sox some credit on the other move. Um, in terms of trading a reliever in Keenan Middleton for someone in Juan Carrella, who's young, who's 21, who's shown good stuff. The last time the, the White Sox did this rebuild, if you remember, they traded guys like Dan Jennings and, and Swarzak for these quad A players, for guys like um, um, Ryan Cordell. And it's like, well, you didn't get anything of value in that case. Um, you just kind of gave away a reliever to give away a reliever. In this case, it seems a little bit different. I certainly don't think um, Corella's as advanced. I'm sure, Michael, you can add more to him. And nearly as advanced as Eater is, but he has good stuff. And he has something you can look at him and be like, hmm, this is a pretty good get for a, a rental starting pitcher. Um, overall, he, today, speaking of the trade deadline itself, I was fine with kind of how they handled those two moves. Um, Berger came out of left field, but I do think they ended up selling high. I do agree with what Rickon said. You know, when you look at this team on paper, they traded from, uh, he chose his words wisely, a relative strength in terms of right-handed power bats. And they prioritized pitching. I think I, I get the rationale behind it. The move outside of that, I'm still trying to fully understand is not moving Dylan Cease and turning around and saying we're ready to compete next season. I'm not fully there with that yet, and I think we can talk about it more later. But if we're talking about things on the other side where I'm like, I'm not sure totally how today went, not moving Cease for as much as it would have killed me personally, doesn't feel like it, it made as much sense with where they're at right now as a franchise. Yeah, all, all good points. And I think, and Jordan, I'm sure you you would agree with this, but it would all depend to me on the returns. You know, like what were the offers for Cease? That's key. But at the same time, given the market, you'd have to assume there was at least something very interesting on the table. But overall, I also agree with what you were saying about the, uh, the Middleton return. I think when the trade happened, a lot of us, I don't want to speak for everybody, I feel like we didn't care as much because we were waiting to see whether or not Cease would be traded. But when that return started to trickle out, kind of like you were saying, Jordan, I was expecting like, okay, who is this random 26-year-old in AAA that we're getting back because it's a one-for-one -one reliever trade. And sure, the market is better now than it was during you know the uh, Sedeno and Soria trades and whatever else you mentioned. But still seeing that we got you know a real-life pitcher who is sure in the lower levels of the minors, but he's young for the level. He's a huge strikeout guy. And he had control issues. Maybe he still does, but they're definitely getting better, at least purely based on the numbers. I was very pleasantly surprised to see 
um, to see that. And then really quickly, just to address Duke's initial question, which I know was for Michael, but we're all kind of discussing it. I still can't get past the uh, the Edgar Caro edition last week, just because he is someone I think I, I'm sure you all know, this, but I haven't talked about it on the podcast yet. He's someone I've been following for years, ever since he was even in rookie ball and, you know, coming out of nowhere as a super young prospect that which is an on-base machine. And I always thought, wow, it would be so nice to have him. So when I saw that he's who we got for Giolito, I, I did not expect that at all. And I was very happy. But I know he has some concerns in terms of, you know, he's hitting a, li- a little more um, ground ball heavy this year, which I think might be because he's 20 years old and he skipped a full level and now he's in double A. Like that's maybe I'm defending him too hard, but that seems like a pretty big jump. But overall, still to have a, a, a catcher who looks like he'll stick with the position and he has such great on-base skills, I thought that was something that was really exciting to see. And I know that trade didn't happen today, but still, if we're talking overall, that's how I feel. Yeah, Nick, I'm with you on – I was really excited when we got Kiro. Uh, he was clearly the prize of this you know, trade season for the White Sox. Um I also completely agree about maybe he's struggling a little bit because he skipped a full level and went from low A to double A. Um, I was honestly hoping that they were going to send him to high Winston-Salem when they traded for him. That obviously didn't happen, but you know, it's not like he's getting embarrassed in double A either. He did, you know, before uh, we traded for him, had a WRC plus over a hundred crazy walk rates. You know, he's a very disciplined hitter. So I guess I get it. I don't agree with it, but I kind of get it. Um, I also just wanted to touch real quick back on Juan Carrella um, in a, Jordan was talking about that was a very underrated move um you know on paper we got you know the Yankees 29th best prospect which it is what it is but I do think that this is a good upside play um getting you know trading a reliever that we just signed in the offseason who was a rental anyways for um he's got good stuff he's probably you know upsides more of a back-end starter but I mean, again, that for a rental reliever, I think, is a huge win. You know, he's got crazy strikeout numbers in high right now. He's only 21. So I do think that was a very sneaky good move as well. My only problem with all of this in terms of the trade deadline and some of the things that we're kind of saying afterwards is that they they don't all jive together. Like, you're correct. You're you're both correct in saying Edgar Caro is absolutely the, the prize return for the White Sox, and I was I was shocked. I was on record saying, "Hey, I think ninety to a hundred overall top prospect for Giolito is probably more in, more in the ballpark." So someone who was ranking in the mid seventies, wow, it's pretty good. The problem is then you turn around and say you're going to compete next year, or it's viable to compete. I, I guess to quote Rickon directly. The problem with that is you just sold off a bunch of pieces. The best you got was a 75th ranked overall prospect who's 20 years old in double A. And what's left at the major league level is not going to be supplemented by talent anytime soon. So that means you got to go out and spend. And this team doesn't historically go out and spend. So it's like, where is the logic coming from that, you know, you're going to compete next year like i think doing something like trading jake Berger almost signals we're not going to compete next year like that that feels more to me like a move that hey you know even if he's just a complimentary bat as someone who can just hit the ball out of the ballpark that's something you want on a competing team but i I don't see a need for jake Berger if they're not competing next year so it's like the, the words don't match the actions and maybe it's still some confusion over the Dylan C's move. Maybe you're right, Nick. Maybe they just didn't get what they wanted. They didn't have to move him. But they also didn't have to say we're going to be viable to compete in 2024. I think that's the part of the disconnect that, you know, if they go ahead, say, hey, we'll reassess after this year and then trade C's in the offseason, I'm fine with that. That that seems consistent. But there's no point in sticking your foot in your mouth, essentially, by saying that, yeah, we're, we're viable to compete in 2024. There's still a massive amount of talent here. No, there's not. Sorry. Right now, there is not a massive amount of talent. And there's not much talent coming until like 2025, maybe. It, that, that was the one thing that really, really bothered me over the course of this. It's just actions didn't match words that were coming out of mouths. So up until today, I would have probably argued with 
argued a lot of those points just for the fact that a lot of these guys that we got rid of, or I don't want to say got rid of, a lot of the guys we traded early on heading into the deadline were mostly guys who weren't going to be here next year anyway, regardless of what the result of the season was going to be. We said pretty early, or the White Sox said pretty early on in the process for whatever reason, they didn't really plan on bringing Lucas Giolito back. And that was before we completely had a full-on lost season. Um, Reynaldo Lopez, we kind of had an idea that even if he, like if we all kind of thought he was going to pitch well and maybe pitch out of our market, but it was kind of an accepted thing that he was probably going to be gone as well because I think he wanted to go test his market on the open market. I would not be surprised if he ended up doing that. Um, Lance Lynn, I think all of us were wondering how the world we were going to get rid of the Lance Lynn contract and Joe Kelly. It, it just made too much sense for Joe Kelly to move on and honestly go to the Dodgers. That it was like a match made in heaven. Um, Joe Kelly, you could have made an argument for bringing him back next year, but you know, honestly, I, I, I just, even, even with that, he was struggling quite a bit throughout the course of his white Sox uh, career. And this is me speaking as a big fan of Joe Kelly, Kendall Graveman, another one that was kind of obvious, really up and down. And, uh, you know, with some of the guys we have coming up in the bullpen, maybe not a guy that you necessarily want to bring back next year either. Then we get to the Jake Berger trade. I'm glad you highlighted that, Jordan, because that's where I start really getting confused because of the contract control we have with Berger and with kind of a underwhelming player at first base and Andrew Vaughn that kind of really ruins that idea of having an option there in case we wanted to move on from a guy like Vaughn, who was a highly touted prospect, a lot, a lot more recent than a guy like Jake Berger, you know, a team could potentially still see some value in that. But um, I, I, I do think it's very confusing on where the white Sox are going here um, because, you know, for the most part with, with the trade deadline, it seemed like there were moves that kind of pointed at, okay, we're punting this year. You know, I'll never buy that. The white Sox are saying they're contending next year ever, ever. I will never buy that coming out of their mouth because I know exactly how they how they spend in the offseason. But with with a con, with a contract control and a young guy and a guy who wanted to be in Chicago long term and really was one of our few power bats not named Luis Robert in the lineup, it's very confusing. I don't. I, I just find myself very very confused on that front. Yeah, but why? My point more so is why even say it? Like like you're doing everything that signals to all of us. You're, you're not competing next year. And that's fine. Like, I'd rather you just accept the losses and try this again versus giving some false hope. But at the same time, the reason I feel like the first wave of the rebuild was so successful is because the team was pretty forthcoming and honest about everything. Like, hey, all the quotes, mired in mediocrity. Basically, this team stinks and we can't keep doing it the same way. If you're trying to get people to buy in a second time into this, you, you can't start out with a lie and be like, yeah, we're, we're, we're prepared to compete next year or we're viable to compete. Based on what? Next question when he said that should have been from somebody. How? You, you have Dylan Cease, who's been inconsistent, but is still a top two in the rotation guy. You have Michael Kopech, who has not looked good. Like he has had spurts but he has not looked like anything more than a back-end guy so far this year in terms of long waves. And that's it. Like, where is this viable team coming from when you only have two-fifths of a starting rotation and you don't have a true second headliner right now? It's like, why start off this next wave of things with a lie? Just say, hey, we're going to we'll reevaluate. We're not going to put a name on it yet. We'll talk at the end of the season when I have my press conference. Don't come out and say we're viable to compete. That, that's a lie. You're not. And if you are, it's because you're spending Steve Cohen type money. There, there are just certain ways to handle these situations that I feel like, yeah, you're right, Duke. I don't buy that they're competing next year either. But why say it? Like nobody buys it. So, so don't don't try and sell something like I, I don't sell something you're not going to be able to stand up to because that's when you get the words thrown back in your face three, four years down the line. 2024 ticket sales. Sure. That's, that's yeah, why. but but who buys it? That's my thing. Is there anybody buying it? Somebody's going to buy it. Oh, so, not everybody will not renew. Somebody somebody will buy into it. Like I just... People lie, man. People, a lot of people lie. And the White Sox lie a lot, and they've they've always kind of lied. 
So I mean, I'm just I'm just kind of privy to it at this point. Like they just they just lie. I still I'm still an idiot and I still root for this team. So But if you want people to buy in, be honest with them. I don't have an issue on paper saying, "Hey, this isn't working." You know, we screwed up. Like the fact that the front office is still in place is not their problem. It's their problem to figure this out, but it's not their fault that they're still there. I, we've had this conversation before. Anyone who wants Rakan to step down on his own volition has never held a job in that sort of position. Before. There are 30 people holding that job. I wouldn't step down if I, I wasn't doing a good job at it. I'd keep trying to get better because I know only 29 other people have that job. But just don't don't start off this next process with a lie that that really frustrates me when again baseball fans are smart they can look at this team and be like you have 40 percent of a rotation right now and neither of them have looked consistent this season where are you competing where where are you getting this again especially from a rotation where are you getting these guys nobody's stepping up right now yeah i agree i mean i think there are really two things i have to add there one is Duke was saying ticket sales, that's a big part of it. But in addition, I think it's just that, and this is me speculating, but I'm pretty sure we'd all agree that I don't think Jerry Reinsdorf wants to wait another four or five years for a rebuild, especially because, you know, he's getting up there in age and you never know. I'm not saying that he's going to go crazy and sign Shohei Otani. I mean, I I would love that, but I'm saying that I I don't (laughs) see Duke cracking up on this. What I am saying is that I don't think that a full rebuild is in the cards, even though on paper, you know, trading Berger kind of signals that. And frankly, what I would have done, I know earlier I maybe somewhat defended them by saying who knows what the offers were for Cease. I probably would have traded Cease today for the best offer, whether it was Baltimore, Diamondbacks, Dodgers, I don't care. Like, I think once you traded Berger, you kind of were making that clear. But if, if the idea is that, the White Sox front office ownership, whatever, doesn't want to do a full rebuild. If they're if they really are just that delusional, they think they're going to compete next year. What we're kind of dancing around in Jordan, what you were implying, is that they need to spend money in the off season. And while maybe they'll sign a couple, you know, mid level guys, I think everyone's kind of pointing to all the money coming off the books. Like, oh, they traded when they won't have to pay, you know, all these guys next year. They just traded, although most of them were rentals anyway. But that doesn't take into account that a lot of the existing core players are getting scheduled raises in their contracts next year. You have guys who are entering arbitration for the first time. So it's it's going to be tough. And I think that's kind of the disconnect is if they're really saying we're going to compete next year, they're also saying we're going to spend a lot of money in free agency. And I, if, I, I think we don't really owe them the benefit of the doubt there because I don't think it's going to happen. But do we think, like, it's, it's frustrating. I'm like, do we think... Jerry looks at this team and is like, yep, this can compete next year and you can do it with a $150 million budget that I'm going to give you because when I ran 190, we didn't get anything out of it. Like I, I just, again, I, I, I want to believe these are highly educated individuals. I want to believe they can see the same thing as any of us as Sox fans and see it and be like, Hmm, this, I don't know where this is going next year. And, and if you see it, don't say something different. Like, and the only possible explanation I can possibly give is that Han doesn't want to tank Cease's trade value heading into next season. Like, he wants to say, hey, we're still planning to compete. We might move him. Um, but as of right now, we're still planning to compete. But the problem is, you just shopped him all day, and we're probably about 10 minutes away from moving him. So, like, it's you're not really helping yourself there. And again, I know we haven't touched on all the prospects, but I I think the most important part of all of these trades is that none of these guys are near immediate, one guy. One guy is a near immediate contributor. And from there, everyone else, you're going to have to be waiting a bit. So you just traded a bunch and you don't have anything stockpiling right now to come up next. So I do think there is an interesting dynamic heading into spring training in this upcoming year. Uh, for some of these guys who are going to get to spend the second half in our own developmental system. Um, obviously, you know, a guy like Kai Bush probably doesn't see much time with the Dodgers next season. Might be a little bit different here in Chicago considering our, our minor league system. And if he goes into spring training with, what, three, four rotation spots completely wide open, you know, a lot of, a lot of different things can happen. And I think that's a lot of what 
Rick is doing right now to stockpile these types of guys just to try to rationalize how the White Sox are doing this. It's not like they're trying to stockpile guys who are close-ish, who look a lot better in our system than they do in other team systems. And potentially by the time he hits spring training, maybe a couple of these guys, one, two, maybe even three, could end up being on the opening day roster. Not that that wouldn't make everyone on the south side of Chicago completely thrilled and excited for this competition window to open wide back open if we have three of these guys on the opening day roster next season. But very well could see that be like the justification for some of these moves and where Rick is thinking. I mean, this this is the same guy that said that he had people beating down his door to trade for Romy Gonzalez. Like, I mean, I mean, I, I just like, I don't, I don't know which. I, I love you to death, Jordan. And I love listening to your arguments, especially against the Chicago White Sox, because you're, you're spot on with everything you're saying. It's just, you're giving these guys too much credit from the start. And that's, that's, I used to drive myself mad in the same exact way. And I still do, but like, Thinking that there's actually a plan or thinking that, you know, anything outside of Jerry Reinsdorf being scared that he'll, he's not going to live to see another rebuild. I, I think, I think when you go outside those bounds and you try to rationalize it, you end up just kind of being speechless. And I think that's, I think that's where a lot of us are, but anyway, just kind of, just kind of moving forward. Um, just kind of rationalize what the hell the White Sox are doing. Uh, Michael, I, I do think it's interesting that, with some of these trades, um, we address specifically the catcher position. And I, I think it in Cairo was obviously the big fish. You know, that feels like the big fish this entire process. But I do think Kendall Graveman for Corey Lee is a very intriguing trade. I think Corey Lee is a very intriguing prospect, um, especially considering where his draft status was originally and considering how small of a sample size we've gotten with what we've seen at the major league level. Um, really because of, you know, what Houston has at the catcher position currently. Um, how do you feel about Corey Lee as a prospect and how uh, MLB ready do you think he could be as early as next spring training? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of MLB readiness, Corey Lee is the closest that we brought in this you know, trade season. Um, honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if he's on the MLB roster later this year. Um, partially because I just don't think Yasmani Grandal is on the roster the rest of the season. And I think they've already kind of given Carlos Perez some shots. He he's had some flashes, but he he hasn't, you know, done anything to solidify himself a spot long term on this team. You know, Corey Lee, you, you alluded to earlier, he's got some draft pedigree as a former first round pick. Um, he did have some, you know, pretty good prospect status in the past, and he is a, a talented catcher. You know, he's got a rocket of an arm. He's got good power. Um, you, some things to clean up, you know, at the plate, but he does bring some intriguing upside. Um, part of me honestly thinks that maybe bringing in a catcher like him was, you know, I, I think in general they like the player, they like the prospect, and I think it was a very good return for Kendall Graveman. Part of me does wonder if this was a move to maybe take some pressure off Edgar Quiero, um, let him kind of develop a little longer. You know, no, I, I said it earlier, I wish that they mm-hmm. sent him to high A personally, but, you know, maybe the plan is to keep him in double A for, you know, a, an extended period of time where you know you don't have to worry about it too much because you have a guy like Corey Lee who you can give a look at first, who's got some intriguing upside and at the very least, if he doesn't work out, he's a placeholder until Kiro's ready. So I liked that move. Um, I think, you know, personally, I was, I wasn't sure what Graveman's trade value was going to be. I know, you know, his, his, you know, advanced analytics showed that maybe he was getting pretty lucky with his ERA being still in the threes. You know, he looked a little shaky in some save opportunities and what is owed a decent chunk of money for a reliever. So I really wasn't sure where his value would be. But I think getting a guy like Corey Lee was a good return for him. And, you know, again, I think that we're going to see him on that on the major league roster at some point this season. You know, even just kind of bouncing that back at you because he touched on a couple couple things there, especially with uh, especially with Lee being the uh, who you consider one of the more MLB ready guys. Do you think that Rick kind of had a had a type that he was trading for here? Because. You know, you look at the Luis Patino trade, which I hope I pronounced his last name correctly. I'm just learning his name today. 
um, of a former, you know, a former top prospect, you know? So is this, is this kind of like a trend? Is he, is Rick kind of focusing on some of these guys with that former top prospect pedigree, potentially it's just not working at the current club they're getting. And he's trying to get them at the best possible value. Cause it, it kind of seems like, you know, in the nicest way possible, a little bit of bargain bin hunting as far as some of these guys who, you know, had been that prospect and maybe haven't totally shown that throughout the course of their minor league career. Um, do you think Rick kind of has a type with that or? I mean, I, I think he kind of established having that type before this deadline. I mean, look at some of the moves that we made earlier this year, bringing in Clint Frazier, who used to be a top prospect for the Yankees, took he Toussaint. That one's actually working out relatively well right now. But I, you know, I, I think that, you know, it's kind of a running joke that Rickon does love his, uh, his former top prospects. Um, so I definitely do think that that has something to do with it, that maybe Rickon is looking at some guys who he's getting on a discount that uh, in the past have shown a lot of upside. And maybe he's hoping that his coaching staff can help fix him up. Um, I do think Corey Lee is, does kind of fit that mold as well. Um, where his, his stock is a bit down, but he does still have some clear tools that are exciting. And, you know, and Luis Patino, he was a, a former top 15, top 20 prospect in all baseball. So, you know, obviously it didn't pan out the way a lot of people thought he would. But, you know, I, I think that Rick Hahn saw the success that Tuki Toussaint's having right now and said, well, this guy was even more talented as a prospect. Maybe let's you know give him a shot. So, you know, with with the where the team's at right now, I do like those moves, especially Patino, because we, we we just I believe that we just gave up cash considerations for him. So, you know, we didn't really give up anything of value for him. I really like that move then you know I, it, there's no risk to it and there is some upside to that type of move so you know with this season especially with needing arms because you know we traded most of them away um you know i i see nothing wrong with you know going you know going bargain bin hunting and hoping that you you know find something more valuable than anyone else is able to uncover I personally don't. I know a lot of fans like, oh, we're kind of just looks at the 2016 uh, Baseball America top 100 list and picks guys from there. I'd rather you do that than try for some quad A player. Like at least there, there's some rationale behind that. I'd rather you do that personally. I, I don't get some of the jokes behind that one personally. Um, but in, in terms of trends, I, I think that's a good question to ask to do because like I, I feel like there were two trends we've seen recently from the White Sox. Number one left-handed bats that, that prioritize on base percentage. I think that is something the team is lacking. I think you've seen it with Montgomery. I think you saw it with Jacob Gonzalez. And I think you're now seeing it with Carroll. You're starting a trend there. Additionally, you're seeing a lot of power arms, a lot of guys who might be some sort of bullpen guy internally, though. So someone like a Gregory Santos. Keenan Middleton was a good example. And now Jordan Leisure from the Dodgers is another good example. The problem I have with all of that isn't that they're doing it. It's that why haven't you been able to do it before? Like, why Why are there not these on-base percentage guys who hit from the left side in your system? Or why aren't you developing them further than either drafting them or trading for them? Same thing with some of the power arms. It's like, yes, for years you used to be really good at building a bullpen and doing it internally. Then there was this, like, three, four year period where all this team did was sign relievers. And now it seems like they're going back to what they were good at. It's like, what's sort of the methodology behind some of this? I, I think the trends are good. My concern just becomes where has this been for the lack of a better phrasing? So I, I have a theory on that personally. You know, I think that, the first wave of the rebuild or the first rebuild, you know, Rick Hahn, I just think, or this front office in general, really just prioritized talent. I don't think that, I, I think that they underthought it. I think they really just focus on, oh, these guys are, you know, these guys have MVP potential. You know, Eloy is a you know, 40 home run hitter. Luis Robert has all, you know, has the talent to be the next Mike Trout. Yohan Moncada has five tool ability. I think that they were just focused purely on bringing superstar talent, but they screwed themselves because 
they were bringing in a bunch of guys who, you know, like you just said, they didn't have plate discipline. They were high strikeout, low walk rate guys. They weren't guys that you could throw together for a complete team. So I almost take this as, you know, maybe this is giving him too much credit. I almost take this as Rick Hahn learning from his mistakes. Like he realizes, oh, I didn't bring in these types of players last year and look where it's got us now. And I almost think this is him overcompensating, you know, only going for a high on-base percentage guys, only going for, you know, left-handed uh, pitchers because they, we don't have any at the moment. So all of a sudden we have a bunch in our farm system now. Um, so I, I just, he didn't do it right the first time. And I, I think maybe he is just catching himself like, okay, now I have to replenish this farm system of players that can do this specific thing because I didn't give us any last time. Which I get. Like, I, I, again, I, I agree the learning from the mistakes is good. I, I think that's a good theory. My, I, and there's going to be no good answers. This is a rhetorical question. It's more so like, what led you to think something other than this was the right idea in the first place? Like, a couple of those players are fine. Like, having a couple Jake Berger type players in your system is a good thing. You need some sort of balance. You can't just pick and put a lineup out of nine Jake Burgers. Like, that, that's not going to work. And at times, it seems like that's what they ended up looking like they were going to do. How many times did we have the conversation about where are you going to fit all of these right-handed bats in this lineup? It's like, at a certain point, I'm glad they're learning from this, but it's unfortunate that they had to learn that through failure, if that makes sense. No, I think uh, I think you make a really great point with that, Michael. You know, just kind of even just jumping on of uh, Jordan's point there. Um, you know, there, there really wasn't a lot of those kind of like, uh, you know, and I'm trying to think of a way to say this without sounding like a total like got that dog in them situation right now. But like you just don't have enough of those like minor leaguers that kind of popped up through like the mid to late rounds that have found their way on the main White Sox roster. And, you know, Jordan, kind of like you said, you, you see team you see teams that have guys like that. Obviously, you can't build an entire team of guys like that. But when you focus so much on talent and the potential of what guys can be you you can just flat out have long periods of time where you just don't have these everyday guys producing you know i i always think of uh and you know i i'm a, i'm i'm sorry if this name offends you you know as as white Sox fans and knowing how detroit was back in the day but a guy like brandon inch having a guy like that on the roster that's that's a really nice type of player to have playing every day at a different different position when uh you know you need things to get going regardless you know you're gonna have your guys that are gonna hit those 30 home runs and we're seeing the first taste of luis robert as an absolute superstar this season but in those years kind of building up to that we didn't have anybody to kind of carry the way besides say a Jose Abreu and he, he, he was already proven. He was proven before any of these guys even got here. You know, you, you could argue he's proven before he even came to the MLB. So it, it's, you need those types of guys that can just drive in constant production. And when you don't have them, you don't have the guys that can play every day, you know, and you don't have the guys that can play consistently at different positions who have kind of worked their way to this level. And you're only handing guys like Yoel Moncada who had played limited baseball, a huge contract, Oloy Jimenez, who I believe had played, a game on the major league level, a huge contract, same with Luis Robert to even get him in the building. This is what you kind of run into. You know, it was a lot of quote unquote high price guys in the White Sox eyes that we just kind of try to bring together and force it to work. And we just never really had those everyday, you know, clubhouse guys that could show up and, you know, produce on a day to day basis. You know, we tried to force feed them with guys like AJ Pollock who had done it elsewhere and kind of had that, mentality for different teams but it just never seemed to kind of fully click and uh by the time that we started getting guys like that like imagine an Andrew Benintendi in 2021 you know what I mean like compared to what we have now it, it, it just it just feels a little bit too late how did I know you were going to be a Brandon Inge guy like how did I just know that it's not <laughs> it's it's not even that I'm a Brandon Inge guy but a guy who can play shortstop and catch 
on two different days in the same week is impressive. I, I have to admit that. But you being a Brandon Inge guy, you're a Brandon Inge guy. Like, don't even try to. No, I'm a I'm a two hit wit Whit Merrifield. That is where the White Sox can sign all the money in this. Whatever, offseason. I'm done. I, all I knew, I knew you when you said that name. I'm like, that makes the most sense for Duke ever. <laughs> I like guys who can play multiple positions, man. I I, I need I need someone who can give me 110 percent, even if their 110 percent isn't 50 percent of the best player on the team. I guess that's the best way I can put it. I mean, and some have said that uh, Brandon Inge walked so that Isaiah kind of fluffle could run. So we got to at least pay him, pay him credit there. But, oh, my God. Uh, but one That's thing I actually great. do want to add to Duke's point, kind of in parallel, is that That's another thing that has annoyed me about the way the rebuild went. And I can't say it's that surprising, but so much of the rationale, like, look at this, these talented players that we've got. Oh, they're all in double A AA and triple A. So that means we can't sign anybody who could even remotely compete with them in any position which i'm not trying to say that oh you need to sign a center fielder when you have Luis robert in the wings like that would be a bit much but what i am saying is that it's like oh second base is reserved we can't sign a second baseman because we have nick madrigal coming in two years and then nick madrigal comes up and gets hurt and it's like oh well now what and then you're kind of stuck scrambling that's something i'd like to see them not repeat this time around like they have a ton of uh talented starting pitchers in the double a uh, level right now double a or high a and that's great, but it's like that doesn't mean you should just go into next year with like Tuki Tucson and Jesse Schultons and and be good. Like those guys will need development and kind of like the argument with Oscar Colas this year. Like he was ha- kind of handed right field. Obviously, it didn't work out. I'll admit I was wrong on that one. I thought he would be a lot um, more effective right away than he was. But at the same time, I wanted them to sign somebody to give him you know a little bit of competition. I'm not saying he would have been better with it, but the team would have been better because whoever you signed probably would have been better than what he gave. It's the Braves model of the rebuild versus the White Sox model. It's like you got to a certain point where like you did all the team friendly deals. You just didn't fully develop them or they didn't fully develop. I don't, I don't want to just blame the team for that. Like the players have to have some sort of accountability, but what you didn't do is you didn't supplement like Nick, what you're saying is you didn't have that consistent level of talent still coming through the farm. You weren't churning out studs necessarily, but you were churning out guys who could realistically fill the void if necessary. That That's the missing piece right there. I think you absolutely hit it there. Like, hey, we have a guy at this position we think long-term, so we don't need to go sign another guy there. Well, what happens if it doesn't work perfectly? Because you kind of have a history as a team of it not working out right away with a lot of your guys. So at what point do you say, hmm, a little bit of insurance isn't a bad thing, or hmm, let's keep spending some of that international money, or let's try for these free agents that we can sign on minor league deals. Let's just continue to stockpile things here and there. That's a very good point in terms of just, you didn't fully dive into it as much as you needed to. And hopefully I think, you know, Michael said it earlier, hopefully they're learning their lesson at this point. And that's what you see this time around. Well, yeah. And I mean, even to kind of just encapsulate both the points you guys made, and you know, I I think this is a really good conversation because it kind of starts diving into what really went wrong is, you know, like like you said, Jordan, like with, with say the Brave system, they uh they sign players knowing the guys that they have in the wings that could potentially take that spot in the next year, but they don't care. Cause if that guy takes that spot, you can you can move the player you already have. You know what I mean? Like if you sign if you sign a competent MLB roster while having guys like Aloy Jimenez, Luis Robert really chopping at the bit. But you still kind of, you still have to make them earn it just just a little bit more than they ended up having to, then you are left with a roster with a lot of backup plans, and you don't have to have a season fall apart because Luis Robert gets injured, or you don't have to have a season fall apart because Aloy Jimenez gets injured. You have a guy that you signed originally to start from day one, who uh, got his job taken, sure. But as long as he's being a professional about it, once he get gains that job back, you still have a competent MLB baseball player in that spot to kind of fill the role, you know, because that's what killed us more than anything were these injuries. And we had no way to answer that because we had absolutely zero depth. And uh, it's you, you nailed it. It's we had all this young talent. We just tried to get by on that. And we decided we're not going to build our farm. We're not going to bring in competent major league baseball players outside of guys you can get in the bargain bin. and. Uh, we uh, we fall apart every single time a significant player gets injured because we have absolutely nobody at even a somewhat replacement level to bring that type of production into it. 
Sounds like a recent article that Nick wrote about, yeah, there was really only one, one way this was going to work, and that was everyone had to stay healthy all the time and had to produce at maximum levels all the time because if they didn't, there was no backup plan. There was no Corey Lee-type player who maybe is a former prospect pedigree, but hey, he might be able to give you something. It was more so you're looking down the line like, I don't know. Let's bring up Jose Rodriguez straight from double A. Let's bring up Lenin Sosa straight from double. Let's let's figure something out. Like, like, and, and I truly do hope it's like with this next phase of the rebuild. I keep saying next phase, like, cause it really never ended, I guess. But like with this next phase coming, like you just signed a bunch of guys who maybe they aren't the impact talent players, but now you have a little bit more depth, kind of patch some holes. Now you got to figure out where these stars are coming from. Because you really only got one, probably, when it's all said and done, that's Luis Robert. You got to figure out where the stars are coming from now. But you at least feel a little bit de- better about where the depth is coming from. Again, you can't start from that accelerated position when you're rebuilding this time. You have to do it right. And that's why I just think it's going to be a little bit longer of a haul at the end of the day. We'll see. But at some point, I keep coming back to what Michael said. Hopefully, this is somewhere along the line you're going to learn from your mistakes. You know, and the White Sox, I think, you know, according to reports, were very close to learning from their mistakes and really able to kickstart their uh, the future of the Chicago White Sox with a potential trade for, drumroll please, Salvador Perez. I hate my life. I hate my that life. That was going to be... That was going to be Rick Hahn learning from his mistakes, if I'm if I'm hearing this correctly. I saw that. I'm like, that might be the end of me. That truly would. It made no sense to me. And you read it. You saw it. You're like, what? Who? Why? Huh? Like, nobody wanted that. Right. I mean, the whole like, it's like selling and buying at the same time, and that wouldn't make any sense to me. And then when you look past it, too, everyone's like, oh, it's that's the Royals again. We always love poaching from the Royals. Why do we do this? And I agree, we shouldn't stop doing that. And I'm not, I'm not supporting the idea at all. But even looking past that, Perez is owed like, yeah, forty-four million dollars for the next two years, and he's been worth zero point one wins above replacement this year, zero point five last year. He's just not good anymore. He was never that good to begin with, but that's another debate. Currently, he's definitely not that good. He's a complete net negative defensively. If you hate Grandal's defense, you're not going to like Salvador Perez. Like. Why is this a thing? Thank you. And it's, it's like at a certain point, he's probably going to be on the White Sox, honestly, if Pedro Gafol's here, just because that connection seems so tight. But it's such a negative value contract and everything about it just makes no sense. Like, we're going to have uh, Corey Lee and Edgar Carroll up here. And it's like, we're, I'm, I'm not going to be surprised on the day that we trade something of actual value with Salvador Perez. And it, it will never make any sense to me. Yeah. Part, part of me almost thinks that we brought in all these catchers just to just for Rick Hahn to finally give Pedro Grafal a reason why we can't bring in Salvador Perez. You know, I'm sure Grafal is the one that spearheaded that. Um, and I really hope that the call was just a due diligence just to, you know, appease Grafal. Um, I, I really do think that once we traded for Corey Lee, that probably ended any possibility of trading for Salvador Perez. Um, I, I because he's younger, he's less expensive. He probably can give you just as much at this point in his career that Salvador Perez can. Um, yeah, I was my jaw dropped when I saw that report, but I, I'm I'm convinced that Corey Lee was almost Rakan's way of saying no, we cannot bring Griffal in. At least that that's what I'm hoping in my head to rationalize it. Like. Salvador Perez this season has a lower WRC plus than Yasmani Grandal, and everyone is ready to ship Grandal to the curb. Like just because Perez hits more bombs, like we've already seen, you need to be more than just one dimensional. We've talked about this. We just traded a guy who was too one dimensional because there was no fit for that on a long term part of this team. What were you thinking? Even taking those calls, I, I that one. It's like everyone is so ready to kick Grandal to the curb. And I get it. It's time. Move on. It, it, it's past what he was meant to be here to do. But to bring in a 33-year-old catcher who's under control for a couple more years at an average annual value more than Grandal's contract, $21 million a year, you thought, 
like oh yeah this is great this is what what is the logic behind that and i am sure there are Sox fans who wanted that i know there are a lot who didn't but i have gotten in tons of arguments over the value of salvador perez over the years and the fact that we were even close right after we talk about clearing all this money and hey bob nightingale saying they can add because they cleared all this money you were going to spend $21 million of it on Salvador Perez for even a split second you thought about it? I cannot get over that. I saw that report. I was like, you have got to be kidding me. What is the logic? And you want to bring in your own guys. I get that. But you have to have a little bit of sense of what this team needs. And it certainly isn't a one-dimensional player that plays catcher now. So, it, Nick, if your prophecy comes true, in the Chicago White Sox trade for Salvi Perez. Um, I I feel like I have to do this. I feel like I would have to clip Jordan talking about how the White Sox have potentially learned their lesson <laughs> with the moves they've made at the deadline and then make uh, It's Always Sunny intro right after he finishes the last part saying the White Sox trade for Salvi Perez. If that, if that legitimate, I don't know how I'd react. Like, I was thinking this morning about, like, how I would react on this podcast if Cease got traded today. Because I'm not sure how I would have reacted. But if the return, like, like think about a day in my life where Dylan Cease is traded on the same day they acquire Salvador Perez. Like, if I'm not turning in my letter of resignation for this page, like, something's wrong at that point. And I'm sure he's a great dude. I'm sure he's an awesome dude. But it doesn't mean he needs to be on this team. I was pretty close to having a Hawk Harrelson moment when, you know, like when he had to go check on Todd Frazier. That was me having to go check on Jake Berger after he got traded. Had we topped that with Dylan <laughs> Cease on top of it? I don't know, man. I might have uh, might have just actually finally put my microphone on the shelf for good. Might have. I was surprised you were here today when uh, I saw the burger trade. I was like, oh, Duke might not make the podcast tonight. Shout out to the outpouring amount of support I got from my friends (laughs) when Jake Burger got (laughs) traded because I saw all of that before I saw the actual report. So what a weird day. (sighs) What a what a wonderful time to be a Chicago White Sox fan and be a fan of the baseball team on the south side of Chicago. I don't know any other way to put it. Um, but at least the Cubs convinced themselves to buy at the deadline, even though they were going to win absolutely nothing. But on that note, ladies and gentlemen, that's all we have this week for the Sox on 35th podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the website at SoxOn35th.com, as well as following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at SoxOn35th. Stay up to date with your Chicago White Sox. This has been Duke Coughlin, joined as always by Jordan Lazowski, Nick Gower, and Michael Suero. I'm very grateful that you were on here for this episode. Um, I didn't give you too much of a special shout out this time because you're just basically becoming a normal contributor at this point. So don't expect any uh, special plugs moving forward. Anyway, we will be back next week as we cover another week of White Sox baseball. I love you, Michael. Thank you and go Sox. Let's try this again. Rebuild part two. Go Sox. Selfie Perez to the White Sox in five months. You heard it here first. Roll up. Not happening. (laughs) Please, God. Go Sox. (laughs) 